Russia's war on Ukraine continues, an Iran nuclear deal days if not hours away from emerging, and domestic turmoil continues to divide the American public. Joining us today to talk about her life, her work, and the issues of the day, Huma Abedin, longtime advisor and current chief of staff to former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm your host, Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Great to see you, Rich. Wow. We are on together in a podcast. Finally, I feel like you're my long lost friend. I know, right? It's 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 good to be together and certainly uh, lots of weighty issues to talk about. Let's never do a podcast alone again. Let's stick this out together. I think These that's These are tough a good times. Idea. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, I think you so know, too. and that's the point, right? Um, I always tell people, Rich Goldberg's a great guy. He's just wrong about everything. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't say anything. I just, I just say, oh, Jared sounds very nice. I say, yeah, he's very nice. Very nice. Yes. So, so really tumultuous week. Russia invades Ukraine. Lots of debate in America and around the world about what we should be doing about it, what we are, what we're not doing about it. This is personal for you. Yeah, so this is personal for me. I spent time in Ukraine uh, as a college student doing Jewish social service work, going to see people who had never had a Jewish experience before um, for Passover, uh, shut-ins, orphans. Um, a gr- I'd never been to a Seder with a cigarette break before, the one I was in Odessa. <laughs> um, but alas, I was at one. And I have stayed in touch with friends and, uh, and colleagues from Ukraine. Happy to report that one of them was safely made it across the border into Moldova today, where she met up with members of the Jewish community, the JDC and Chabad, and is going to think about next steps from there. But I was struck by, while the you know Russia clearly the aggressor, things not going great for the Ukrainians right now, this is the first war that has been live tweeted from both sides. And primarily from the non-aggressor side, um, the resistance has been televised, right, and and tweeted. And I think that that is a very unique phenomenon. And I can't help but understand or think about what would have been different if the fall of Europe in 1939 had been tweeted or social mediated. Would we have had a different outcome? Would it have? been incumbent upon other Western powers to become more engaged diplomatically and around the world sooner. I agree with you that the social media effect of, especially on the Ukrainian side, has rallied public opinion, has rallied the world to Kiev's side to say, we must do something, we must stand with Kiev. And it is wonderful to see I call it the Student Council, the United Nations representatives, one by one, standing up and saying, I'm with Ukraine, I'm with Ukraine, isolate Putin, isolate Putin. And it sounds like we're doing something, it feels like we're doing something, but then you look at the map and you look at what's happening to cities and you say, Ukraine's likely going to fall. 
at some point soon unless we change the dynamic dramatically. And I obviously have been very critical publicly for those who follow me on social media of the president's handling of this for the last several weeks. I think there is a lot more we still could do on the sanctions front. I think there's more we can do on the political isolation front. I think there is more we can do on the military and intelligence assistance front. And I all I can think of is there is a domino effect, right? At some point, you have to have a line in the sand and say, if we are afraid of our own shadow, if we're afraid of escalation because of what might come when an aggressor, when a dictator or a ruthless authoritarian who is clearly looking to reestablish an empire in Eastern Europe starts moving across Europe like this with brutality, where will it stop, right? If we're afraid for Ukraine, are we gonna be afraid when it's Moldova? Are we gonna be afraid when it's Lithuania? Are we going to be afraid when it's Poland? I'm glad that we have this social consciousness, this awakening going on in this country after being in this isolationist bubble and allowing Afghanistan to happen uh, and allowing other debacles in our foreign policy to happen because we were looking within and not standing up and not giving our political leaders a signal of we want deterrence. But we have obviously failed, in my view till now, to deter Vladimir Putin that will have consequences for Xi Jinping. That will have consequences with the Iranians. What are we going to do to actually reestablish the deterrence of the United States? Yeah, I, I hear where you're coming from, Rich. I think one of the great lessons of the Cold War, to me, particularly in Asia, was that the dominoes didn't necessarily fall after the fall of Vietnam. And our understanding of what we thought was a monolith was actually not true. That was actually much more complicated. And I would say, you know, after having taken a generation off of producing really smart and thoughtful Kremlinologists, we haven't really done that. Certainly in my, not when you or I were in school or coming up in public service, that was not something you went into after the fall of the Berlin Wall and after the fall of communism. And we probably took our eye off the ball and don't understand what's going on inside of Russia as well as we should or need to, to really figure out what what the solution to Putin is. I, I hope I hope the uh, the sanctions hit a tipping point. It seems like we may be headed in that direction, but is it is it quick enough to, to save Ukraine from falling? I, I don't know, and uh, and I'm hoping for well, it. Well, the but, one lesson yeah. I, I would have, I've studied Putin for many years now is look at what Putin did in Syria, right? He decided in the middle of conflict to continue to send military assets, to continue to send supplies and arms, to put Russians on the ground, to co-locate Russian soldiers on the ground with Syrian soldiers. And his message was, I dare you. I just dare you to start World War III. And of course, nobody was going to do that, right? It's the flip side of what you hear Joe Biden say, well, we're not going to start World War III. Well, is Vladimir Putin going to start World War III if we actually had had people left in Ukraine? Have we not pulled out our training forces? Have we not pulled out our diplomats? Have we said to Vladimir Putin, you come at Kiev, you come at the U.S., you will be starting World War III? I think that's a conversation that, that likely needs to happen. It may be too late for, for Ukraine, but it's not too late uh, for our NATO allies. I think we could probably go on for quite a while on this, but we have... A phenomenal guest on the pod. Yeah, today. take it away, Jared. Let let's move on. I know this is this is weighty issues. People are praying for Ukraine. Let's just say this: we have a strong disagreements on policy. Uh, I, I believe that the president has mishandled this, 
But what I what I do think that we all agree on is we are praying for the people of Ukraine every night. We wish we could do more than we are doing for the people of Ukraine. And we, we ask Hashem to give everyone strength over there uh, in the days ahead. Amen. Amen. Huma Abedin started her career in 1996 as an intern for then First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton. After four years at the White House, she worked in the U.S. Senate as a senior advisor to then Senator Clinton and became traveling chief of staff for Clinton's 2008 presidential campaign. In 2009, she was appointed deputy chief of staff at the U.S. Department of State. Huma serves as vice chair of Hillary for America in 2016 and now serves as Hillary Clinton's chief of staff. Born in the United States and raised in Saudi Arabia, Huma now lives in New York City and recently came out with her first book called Both And. Huma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Excellent. Excellent. Well, before we get to Russia and Ukraine and the piling on, I'm sure Rich wants to do about (laughs) Obama and Biden administration policy towards Vladimir Putin. You're known in Democratic and Republican circles and perhaps all over the globe as the consummate staffer, right? It was never about you. And you decided to do something that's really a departure and wrote a book that is about you and tell your story. What made you do that? You're talking to two former staffers here. So we're fascinated because we're all working on our own books. I'm, by the way, two former staffers now liberated by Twitter. So it's, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, Rich, I think, first of all, Jared, I have to tell you that I think I'm still in like recovery, this notion of going from being behind the scenes to the front of the scenes. Like I write in the book about 25 years ago, knowing the first lesson I learned as a staffer is like never be in the shot, never be part of the story. If a staff person's ever in the story or part of the story or the story, you know, they screwed up. And so it actually has taken like a, a mental, a real mental adjustment to be out in the world and say, wait a minute, this is about me. Uh, I have a story. And to the point that Rich is making, like in this whole world of social media, I mean, I did a podcast interview the other day. And the first question I was asked is, what do you think your brand is? What is your brand? And that's just the world we live in now. Like so much has changed from the days of the 1990s. You know, every day there was a proactive message, one broad frame, and you just pounded that message every day. And now it's all about this 24-second news cycle. Like what's what's in the zeitgeist every 15 minutes? I'm just trying to keep up. Jared, do you have a brand? Um, my my brand is Mr. Hildy Kurek because yeah, as... Answer. As, as, as Huma knows and Rich, you've never met my wife, but she is a million times cooler and more chic and more knowledgeable than I am. So I just try and a future co-host for me. That's excellent. That's by, excellent. by the by the way, she she wants she wants to come on the pod. Okay, <laughs> she would be an excellent guest. And I have decided that now that I'm out in the world and telling my story, and once I wrote the words and put it all down. First of all, it was great therapy, but two, it's a good story. And I, and more than that, now that I'm out in the world sharing it, the number of young people and women and particularly college students who come up to me and feel like they've made some connection, I, I, it just it, it's a very empowering, liberating, but also it feels like a little bit of service that I can participate in. So I, I've been wonderful. You, you had a staffer role in many different ways, right? I mean, from from intern in the first lady's mm-hmm. office, senior advisor in a Senate office, the State Department, a national campaign, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Compare those roles. Was one just better than the other? What, what, did, did you like being lower on the totem pole, higher on the totem pole? You know, was one job you're just like, wow, this is the best job I had of all of them? 
I have to say, Rich, if it had been the same job every year, year after year, I don't think I would have stayed as long as I did. One of the things that's so great about working for Hillary is because she's constantly evolving, she's constantly doing new things. Somebody asked me the other day, like, how, and who is, happens to be a millennial and says, I can't imagine doing anything for more than two years. How did you last 25 years? And it wasn't just that there was a new project. It was like, she's running for Senate. She's running for president. She's, she's going to be secretary of state. It's things that were just these epic opportunities. And to say, I want to have a bigger job. I, I want more responsibility. It was just, a, it was, it was exciting. I, I, I made a promise to myself that the day I woke up and didn't want to go to work is the day I gave my notice. And that was 25 years ago. But did I have a favorite? I don't know. State Department was pretty awesome. And maybe because of what's happening in the world now, knowing, missing kind of being right in the middle of the center of of action. It's hard. There's something kind of addictive, I think, about politics and public service also. I I think, you know, you get hooked and it's hard to get, get it out of your system. Well, let's go to the what's going on in the world. Obviously, Russia, Ukraine uh, is top of mind. Um, you were at the State Department working for Secretary Clinton at, at a time when we were going through what was called the Russia reset uh, under the Obama administration. Look back on that period of time. Do you have recollections of interactions uh, on the Russia file at all? Do you sort of look back on it now today saying, man, we, we could have done things differently back then? I have I have a very clear recollections. I remember the one of the first bilateral meetings uh, that uh, we had with the Russians when Hillary flew to Switzerland and we met uh, then Russian and still uh, Russian foreign minister uh, Sergei Lavrov and uh, and we come up with this kind of kitschy little kind of device uh, the this red button with reset uh, written in Russian that she presented to him uh, at the photo op and and you know they went in taking uh, your listeners back to 2009. I mean, we were resetting our relationship with the world and that included Russia, but in part, the Obama administration's mandate was to repair a lot of the relationships around the world that had really, in our our opinion, uh, suffered in the eight years uh, prior to that. And uh, and it was a big task. It was a big job. And it, so it didn't feel like Russia was the outlier. It was like Russia was part of a, a much broader package. They, we knew the work was going to be hard. I think Hillary was very both prescient and tough in some of the conversations that she had. I mean, the protests in 2011 that she spoke out about the protests that took place in Russia when people took to the streets to protest uh, the government and then the, uh, the, the very tough reaction from the Russian government, from Putin. I mean, she basically called him out and I think, you know, made a little bit of an enemy in him. Uh, so doing anything differently, I don't know. I mean, I think that 2016, I do say this, uh, and I have said this uh, several times over the last few days, the Russian government, our intelligence shared, the, the, the Russians tried, I don't want to say the Russian government, but the Russians did try and interfere in our presidential elections in 2016, and to some extent they were successful. And, and they didn't really pay a price under the Trump administration. Uh, so I think a lot of what we're going through now... Um, except, except for the sanctions imposed in response to the election meddling. The the sanctions now or the sanctions then? Well, the Trump administration did impose sanctions in response. Well, uh, yes, they did. 
it did not it was not at a level that was necessarily had an effect on Putin. I you know, I don't think he was afraid of continuing to do anything that he did. I think he thought the annexation of Crimea was actually a fairly something he could get away with. I think it was why he was able to go into this um, into this current war with Ukraine and basically say, I can do this. This is a country that belongs to the Soviet Empire, and so I'm not doing anything that I'm not entitled to do. So, so Huma, let me ask a question. You talked a minute about a bilat with Sergei Lavrov. Um, we know Secretary Clinton met with President Putin uh, on, a, on a number of occasions. What's it like prepping a principal to go into that meeting? Take us inside the, you know, the prep session and maybe the 30 minutes before Secretary Clinton's about to go in with Vladimir Putin. Well, she's you know she's somebody who does her homework. I mean, you know, when you're a diplomat, you have uh, an entire State Department, a team of seasoned diplomats that, and they're not you know these are not all political appointees. They've been in the business a really long time, and so it's getting the the intel, the talking points that this is what we want to accomplish in this meeting. But a lot of times, at least for us, um, it was about sort of making those relationships, establishing that relationship, or reestablishing in some cases the relationship with these leaders. And, you know, sometimes it's tense. Sometimes it's just let's go in there and try and see if we can, you know, negotiate our way into some kind of agreement here, whether it's on, you know, raising issues related to human rights. It was different every single time. I mean, now that we're in the middle of the war, you know, Russia's obviously taken this sort of outsized kind of space in our world. But back then, we were just trying to move forward one particular, every trip was a different objective. But in part, it was tr- it was trying to reset the Russia relationship, was trying to see if we could partner on more things. But it was not, I don't know that I would have predicted that we were going to be uh, dealing with uh, Vladimir Putin being in Ukraine and essentially starting a war that he started in 2022. I don't think I saw that back then, no. Uh, Jared probably knows that I have a, a different perspective on, on the Russia reset, being on Capitol Hill as it was playing out and, and battling the administration in certain ways. Uh, you know, sort of the memory of the announcement of pulling missile defense out of Poland, you know, on the 70th anniversary of the Russian invasion, you know, withholding arms to Georgia, withholding arms to Ukraine. I guess my question is, in addition to sort of that meeting prep for, for Putin and, and those interactions, did you get any experience going to some of the Eastern European bloc states, uh, some of our allies, whether it was Ukraine or, or Georgia or Poland, working with Secretary Clinton? And sort of maybe explain to our listeners the feeling that exists for them when they talk about it, their fears, how they sort of viewed the region leading up to today and, and sort of your views on what we should do going forward to, to help those allies. Well, I think, I mean, it was a different people at least back then, I mean, a lot of the um, interactions that we had with those countries, uh, in some cases, I mean, Ukraine's a, a perfect example. They were experimenting in democracy themselves. I mean, this is these were new democracies, and in many cases, sort of the the history that was complicated that they didn't they were still trying to navigate their way. I mean, so a lot of it was figuring out how to run successful economies, how to deal with human rights issues, freedom of press. It varied where wherever we went, but in many cases, it was how do we establish ourselves as sovereign nations and figure out how to deal with both our our partners in the region and how to deal with the United States. I have one story I forgot, Jared, to share. Just just as you were talking about Putin before, 
there's some interesting news out of the state of Illinois where I'm from. The longtime 40-year House Speaker was just indicted recently by uh, by the U.S. Attorney for, for corruption charges. And President Obama, uh, this is according to a very senior aide to the Obama administration at the time, who relayed that to others, including the now uh, indicted uh, former House Speaker. He came out of his first meeting with Vladimir Putin. He said, I've never met anybody who reminded me of Mike Madigan before. So that was uh, that was that was quite the uh, the Illinois gossip, and uh, Madigan would tell this story in meetings down in Springfield uh, with with a very big grin. Uh, wow. not, not gritting, not gritting today, but uh, yeah. Anyways, Jared, go on. So, so, Rich, if you didn't know this, if we have an episode of the Limited Liability Podcast yeah. without Rich asking an Iran sanctions question, like <laughs> like Rich's head will explode, like he'll blow a microchip. So we've come to the obligatory point of our podcast where Rich wants to talk about Iran, as we should, because it's in you know it's it's topical and it's uh, the three dimensional chess that's going on right now with Russia and Ukraine and Iran and European allies. So Rich, what's what's your Iran question of the week? Well, there's a couple. Well, one that's obvious is obviously the the stolen election in 2009, right? People remember that as a as a big moment, uh, and the protests coming on the street. Uh, we remember Neda, um, the woman who was killed, and her her photo sort of seared in my mind, at least many others. D- do you remember that that moment and and the conversations that were going on? There was this tension, I think, of how forward leaning could the United States be to not appear to be meddling? We want to perhaps have a relationship with Iran, but at the same time, people look back on it and say, could we have done more at that moment? Was that, was that a moment that we, we could have had a tipping point in, inside Iran? Potentially. I mean, I, uh, the short answer is, yeah. I mean, I don't, who, which, who of us don't remember that moment and Neda and that experience. And, you know, I just left uh, lunch with an Iranian American friend of mine whose family had to flee during the revolution. I mean, it's, I grew up in that part of the world. And so for me, there were two other sort of, you know, neighboring countries. I mean, number one, what, what, what the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and what was happening in Iran kind of loomed large in my life. At state, I think it was a, a very deep, it was also a highly sensitive topic. I mean, these were not conversations that we were had in unclassified rooms. And, you know, I was the deputy chief of staff at state and my co-deputy was Jake Sullivan. And most of the conversations that related to Iran were these very kind of close hold conversations. I mean, the reality is when we started, when we went to Oman, for Hillary to have that first conversation with the Sultan of Oman about being, you know, the the interlocutor with the Iranians, I did not know why we were having that meeting. I just thought it was a bilateral Hillary, and, and that that's how close hold uh, that conversation was. So I I know there were a lot of tortured conversations. I'm not going to pretend that I was in the room as they were discussing the formal policy because you know that really was Jake and others, but. I think everyone was just trying to figure out the next right step for a country that is so opaque and it was so unclear what was actually going to happen. I remember we were in Afghanistan for, was it Karzai? You're testing my memory now. This story didn't end up staying in the book. And the Iranian delegation was there. And it was, at one point, it was, wait, should we st- take a message over there? Should we send somebody over? And and somebody did go over and we did. And this was pre, you know, pre the conversation. But it was just one of those very unique relationships where you're not really quite sure whether there was value in investing in any kind of bilateral hope for bilateral, like trusted bilateral relationship. And I, but I wasn't really involved in the nitty gritty. So I don't want to pretend that I was, but I just... You know, I try to be careful not that I'm on the outside. We've both been on the, we've all been on the inside. 
And so now that I'm on the outside, sort of second guessing and shoulda, coulda, woulda, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think they got the best deal that they thought they could have possibly gotten. And, you know, history in hindsight is always twenty twenty, and I, and I, I don't really know what the path forward is. I mean, it's just like, I don't know what the path forward is on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. You were talking about the, the delegation in Afghanistan. I, I, it reminds me of a story. When I was working at the NSC, I, I was in Vienna at the International Atomic Energy Agency for its uh, board meeting, which they have every quarter. And this is the middle of the maximum pressure campaign, mind you. And I accidentally got into an elevator alone with the Iranian delegation. <laughs> and and uh, nobody, they walked into the elevator after I was already in it. And I think they figured out who I was after like two seconds. And because they were having this long conversation and then they just stopped talking and they looked very uncomfortable. <laughs> and I was like, if I say something right now, like this could be it. Like I could, this, this, I could either make it or break it or, or, also, I hope to God I survived this elevator ride. And the elevator doors opened, and I, I held the door open for them. And they looked shocked. But Rich, in the movie, and, uh, the elevator should have gotten stuck, and you could have done the whole deal right there in the elevator. That yeah. might be when I yeah. write the book. Yeah, wait, wait. When you write the book, that's what's yeah, going to happen. Yeah. 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 We we want to ask you, you talk a lot in the book about your youth uh, traveling. When you just talked about an end of the world, you spent a lot of time in. Um, you talk a lot in the book about your youth traveling a lot to Saudi Arabia. How would you compare the Saudi you grew up around to the Saudi Arabia we see today under MBS? Well, you know, I it's one of the many reasons and, you know, going to the point that Rich was making about being in an elevator with uh, Iranians, I think one of the greatest gifts my parents gave me i was so i was born in michigan and then we moved to saudi arabia when i was two and it was supposed to be a one-year sabbatical my parents were actually supposed to go to italy for their sabbatical and then my father was essentially given a terminal diagnosis and said he had five to ten years and to get his affairs in order and he'd had this opportunity to have this sabbatical in saudi arabia so he went for a year and that year turned into you know 40 some for me it was a gift because i gotta tell you i met the girl i've met the woman because I, in the one of the early chapters of the book, I write about the photo I found of myself as a two-year-old in Michigan, saying, "I don't know what the future of this young woman would have been, like a Midwestern Michigan life." And I met this young woman who came to my event the other day, who said, "I was born in Michigan. We moved to Saudi Arabia for two years. I went back to Michigan. Let me just tell you, my life was not as interesting." But in part because it was a very international community, and taking people back to the late '70s when we moved to Saudi Arabia. It was a very, everybody was an expatriate. I mean, it was sort of, you know, flush with oil money. All these institutions were brand, you know, brand new. And they were basically importing foreign talent. And it was a few years after the then, you know, very popular but moderate king, King Faisal, was uh, murdered by his nephew. So it was a, it was rather a tumultuous time in the Middle East. A lot was happening. Israel and Egypt had just, you know, negotiated a, a peace deal. It was big news in that part of the world. And uh, the siege of Mecca took place while we were living there. So a lot was happening. But I think for me, it gave us a, a real sort of sense of how other people lived, how other, other cultures, other faiths. We spent every summer traveling around the world, different parts of the world. My son, the other day, I was telling him about traveling to Asia. And he said, Mommy, there are a lot of tsunamis in Asia. And I thought, my God, when I was your age, I was like walking the streets of Jakarta and Tokyo because that's just my parents really believed in really exploring other cultures and countries. Now, the environment was very restrictive. I mean, I couldn't, my mother had to wear an abaya. My mother couldn't drive. You didn't wander around freely when you were there. And people ask me all the time now, like, didn't you chafe at that 
those kinds of restrictions. And the truth is, and that's one of the reasons why I'm like very like direct about it in the book, if that was the only life I had known, it would have been one thing. But I just knew that every it was a plane ride away, that that freedom, that ability to go anywhere and do anything. We were in the United States and Europe several, at least once, if not twice a year. So I had the balance. I had the support of community. I loved growing up there. And then every year that I've gone back since, what has surprised me is how... Yes, things that my f- friends and family were not able to do, you know, they can now do. I go to Saudi Arabia and my sister-in-law now drives me around. You know, there are movie theaters. There were no movie theaters growing up. There are, you know, there's more. It's just a different culture. It's on a different timeline. But certainly I see things now that were unheard of when I was growing up. Absolutely. We had Tom Friedman on the podcast a few weeks ago asked him about MBS. Obviously, there was this love affair with MBS growing you know, circa 2017, uh, the Khashoggi murder took the legs out of, of that love affair. But many have continued to stay on the MBS track as Vision 2030, the idea of liberalizing at least socially uh, Saudi Arabia, the potential to counter extremism, the potential to even one day have normalization with Israel. And Friedman's take was, you know, even with the human rights abuses, even with what happened to Khashoggi, we should stick with MBS. This administration obviously came in not with that thought in mind that perhaps is evolving. What's your take on that? I think that, I I mean, I I agree with Tom. I mean, I I think that we are, this is my personal opinion. I have not talked to anybody in the administration about this. So actually what you're telling me is you probably know more than I do. But I do think that obviously what happened was, I mean, I'll be very blunt with you, Rich. I found it very scary and unsettling and, and really made me sick to my stomach. I was scared and unsettled. And so I'm trying to separate that from how do we move forward? You know, I'm sure in the story, I wrote that story in the book. I was sitting at that table in 2012. Here was Hillary at this formal dinner with the king of Saudi Arabia. And I was introduced as the daughter of the country, Bint al-Balad, and a country that I loved growing up in that gave me so much. And sitting next to a man who references his uncle, and I realized I had no idea who he was. That beyond, you know, beyond that group of Al Saud brothers who I, you know, I could name, I was always the staffer who said, then there's this brother, then there's Bris the brother and this brother. I didn't know what was going to happen after the king, you know, then King Abdullah passed away. What was going to happen? And because this whole generation was opaque, no one had heard of MBS back then. Not, not even a word. And so it was really remained to be seen what the future is. And I didn't, you know, I always believed during the Arab Spring, I was very direct about this in the book. I believed during the Arab Spring that, yes, you know, the two types of, of rulers in the Middle East, I thought that the monarchies were going to fare better than the autocracies because you have that, you guys know this, you have that, you have that loyalty to the, the founder of the country. I mean, think about it. Saudi Arabia is the only country of the world, only country in the world that's named after the man who founded it. And so that loyalty to the family, and this is, okay, so they've decided that MBS is the crown prince, and that's their, that that's the government that we have to work with. And I do see, I only speak of it from a kind of a citizen, or not, not a citizen, but just a person who's wandering around. Things are changing, things are changing slowly, but things are changing, and I don't know what the alternative is. I mean, Rich, what would the alternative be? To say we're not going to work with this government, or we're, we're demanding that you choose another crown prince? Are we in that position to do that? I mean, we've spent you know, the last 20 years at war with two countries and look how we're leaving them. 
I don't know. Is you know, it's like. No, I, I I personally agree with you. I just wrote an essay on this in, in Mosaic. I, I I was just there late last year, and the changes are are yeah. palpable. It's it's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. So when I was a house staffer, this is this is going way back. I also had this weird path of different staff jobs: house, senate, governor's office, NSC. Uh, but going back to my my roots in the House of Representatives, I recall your former husband notoriously being. <laughs> The guy who introduced <laughs> the resolution of disapproval on Saudi Arabia arms sales every oh, yeah. single year. It was like waiting for that vote for the Wiener resolution like yeah. every single year. Did, did you discuss that? Were his views at all shaped by that or was that something he already had, had come to? Oh, no, no, no. He, he had come to that. I mean, he, he was, you know, one of the things about my relationship with Anthony is that I, what I found very attractive about him when I first met him was that he was never afraid to speak truth to power or like really he when he had a position on something he believed in it really passionately and he sort of went after it over and over again i mean i think everybody remembers him pounding the lectern um, when he was advocating on behalf of funding for the 9 11 uh, first responders and their families you know just so no he was on the record uh, about that and about saudi textbooks um on the record about that and um so uh, yeah we did have some healthy debates uh, healthy debates about it for sure yeah, and there's a story in the book, right, where uh, you talk about on your first date, you guys had to fight about Israel, Palestinian politics. Is that is that accurate? Absolutely, we did. Who who won? You won. I want to know what. Yeah, yeah. Well, <clears throat> if you ask Anthony, he will tell you he won, and I always believed I won. <laughs> okay. But I have to say this as somebody who was married to him. I mean, it's very hard to win an argument with Anthony Weiner, but um, I think I held my own. I think I tried. I tried to hold my own. Um, and you know, he was right in some cases. I was right in some cases. I, there's a, you know, one of the, in fact, that chapter in the book, nations and tribes, somebody reached out to me and said they want to do a show just about nations and tribes because of, you know, and I write about this connection between Muslims and Jews and going to Israel and feeling that deep, deep, deep connection. And that here I was spending a week with like six of my Jewish colleagues. It's like, Literally, Shamir, Rosenthal, Stein, um, Shamir, and Abedin. And at the end of the week, the Israeli foreign ministry guy says, we like this delegation, but we like you because you're the most like us and feeling so deeply connected. So, yeah, no, I think it's, um, it, was a good, it was a good, healthy debate. We enjoy, we enjoy our debates. Do you, do you have other memories from that trip? I mean, places you went, uh, experiences you had? Some hummus that just changed your life. I mean, whatever. First of all, I gained about five pounds on that trip. We <laughs> stayed at the Jerusalem Hilton. I would stand on that balcony and just looking out to the old city. I mean, I felt it um, just all throughout my body. There's still- in your ki- in your kishkas in your yes. kishkas. Now I will tell you something. Okay, I'm going to make an admission. The story got cut from the book. This is how ignorant I was. Okay, so I did not know what a Shabbat elevator was. Okay. Okay, oh. that's fair. By the way, that, that means the story could take 1998, a while. I'm like, I don't understand. Why is this elevator? Why is this elevator stopping on every floor? <laughs> I don't, I just, I'm going from nine to the lobby. And my, my colleagues are like, oh my God, just stop talking. Like immediately stop talking and stop <laughs> saying this in front of the shin bat. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a story that got cut that cut from the book is I did not I mean you know I really think about and and I talk about Masada the fact that we went and you guys I did not know I didn't know the story I was 21 I did not know the story 
And that's yeah, one of the powerful. Yeah. Story. I mean, that was like a real like eye opening experience for me. And then when I get into debates and people say, well, my God, you come from backward, you know, whatever, Saudi, Arab, Islamic community. And I'll say, do you know, the very first word revealed in my faith was read. That's it. The very first word revealed to Muhammad in that cave, who was an illiterate, was read. So it's it's these, you know, that's why I think the dialogue is so important. Change, that trip changed my life. And I found a letter I wrote to my mom. It's the last thing I'll say about that trip to Israel in 1998. I found a letter I wrote to my mom just after the book was published. She found it in her thing. It says, Mom, I'm in Israel. I'm, I, it's on Jerusalem Hilton letterhead. And I said, this trip has changed my life. Wow. We've known each other for a long time. But there is, in some segments of the wider Jewish community, misconceptions about you. Right? There Things are? that, you know. There. Uh, you and, and Barack Obama. Oh. Um, so, you're in, so you're in good company. Yeah. But, but if you... Jer- Jared's on all kinds of blogs. You should know that. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. Kind of, he's reading all the blogs. So if you were, could take this opportunity to clear up one of those misconceptions that you think is out there about you in the Jewish community, what would you want to do? Because you're, you have a, a zillions of Jews listening right now to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. Well, I hate to admit this, but it's the truth. And I, I just left a friend who's been, you know, in the press a lot recently. I actually, believe it or not, Jared, you may have to, like, inform me a little bit. I don't read anything about myself ever, 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 positive or negative. I don't read, I don't read the Daily Mail. I don't read the New York Post. And so I don't, misconceptions, um, I would have, so I'd have to presume what the misconceptions are. Yes? Well, if, if Michelle Bachman was a fair, uh, a fair barometer for what so, some, some elements yes. of the community might think. No, but I appreciate that. And I think that's one of the main, because Michelle Bachman and that accusation was one of the main reasons I wrote the book. Um, and it is because for those of us who, you know, come from the part of the world that I come from, your name and reputation is everything. And what Michelle Bachman did and the, the five Republican members of Congress who joined her was essentially question my patriotism and essentially suggested that I, and not just me, it was other high-ranking Muslims serving in government, that we essentially were not loyal to this government and that we should be investigated. But worse than that, it was my mother and my deceased father suggestions that they were tied to extremist views and thinking. And we were accused of being a members of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was viewed with suspicion, certainly in this country, you know, parts of the Middle East and in Egypt, and it had a negative effect. I mean, we went on an official State Department trip, and a member of the Christian, uh, the Coptic Christian community sat across from Hillary and said, we're not sure we can trust, we trust you because of your aide who is whispering all kinds of things in here. It was fake news based on a fake video created by a gentleman named Frank Gaffney. I don't even mention him in the book. And all kinds of negative things were said about me and my family and a bunch of other high-ranking Muslims. And the reality is it's none of it was true. We were not members of any sort of extremist group. And I and all I can do is try as best as I can to just serve my country and to do what I think is right. And I can't I don't know how to undo all the untruths. But I refute every single allegation and accusation. And I think what she ended up doing, I was the appetizer, Jared. I think I was the appetizer in 2012 where they suggested that people from my faith and my community were the boogeyman. And they tried it in 2008 with then-Senator Obama. It did not work. He ended up being the canary in the coal mine. 
And then in 2016, sure enough, the extreme, you know, led by Donald Trump, this idea that Muslims are terrorists or they're the other and Muslims should be banned and all of these things, it worked. And uh, and it's I don't know how to correct it, except that I think it's one of the reasons why it's important for people from my part of the world to keep talking about what we do believe in. Your part of the world being Michigan. No, I'm just kidding. I, I get. Um, all right, so we're going to shift gears and go to the lightning round, which oh, is how we round. we finish up every every. Pod. Oh no, I don't know if I'm going to be ready for this, but go. Okay, so we're going to ask you a series of questions, only a handful, to get a little bit of a better sense. Um, so, lightning round. Any favorite Yiddish words, and they can be Yiddish profanity. It's okay. I don't have any. Wow, that's it. Any fav- favorite Yiddish words? Come on. You worked in New York politics for quite some time. Maybe something that came off the lips of the senior senator from New York for once in a while. Oh, no. I don't have anything. Well, you said you said kishkas, so I think that you, we could go with kishkas, oh, right? Kishkas for sure. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Okay. Okay, that's a good one. Yes, and uh, you showed us you showed us your kishkas uh, and, and sort of bore, bore your bore your kishkas for us. Go ahead, Rich. We don't want to see your kishkas. I don't want to see anybody's kishkas. Uh, uh, very clear. Okay, hey, go ahead, no Rich. kishkas. This is I don't know what we're rated by the way. We're, we're gonna... You could substitute if you want for your favorite Arabic word or expression. Ah, yes, I like that. Inshallah is what I always say. Uh, Inshallah. Yes, Bar- I say that Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. Exactly. Yeah. There you go. Or toda. I always said toda to everything. Anyway. Oh, toda. Here we go. We say or he. We had uh, we what, what did what did our, our imam friend say a few weeks back? Yalla. He said, that's the thing everyone says in Arabic and in, in Israel. Yalla, everything is yalla. But go ahead. What, what did the imam said? He said bur, um, baruch baruch shallah. That's what he said. Oh, I love that. It was, baruch Allah. Sorry, baruch Allah. But all right, all right. Favorite Jewish food you've ever had. I don't think that's really fair because I feel like it's the same. Like when I go to Israel, it's the same food I eat at home, right? Well, for Israeli food, yeah. But like, I mean, like Eastern European. Kosher style. It doesn't have to be kosher. It could be kosher. Or how about your favorite kosher restaurant in New York? It could be kosher style. It doesn't have to be strictly kosher. (laughs) Well, let's see. Um, I like... Um, I have to say, like, my favorite at, at the holidays is, like, the challah. That's Jewish I mean, I'm food. a big, yes. like, carb. That's, that's my, I, okay, that's, like, I'll eat, like, the whole thing. That's it. That's Jewish food. That's it. You just did it. Huma, you didn't know this as an aside, but my amazing wife, who we all agree is the better half of us, during COVID, to cope with all of the ridiculous stress has taken to baking a fresh baked challah every Friday for the last two and a half years. And if you're nice to her, there could be a second loaf. There could be a second loaf for you. I'm just saying, okay. Every holiday, my, my father-in-law would, that would like, he would do the prayer and I would always be like right there. (laughs) Like I I wanted the first. So I would say I need a whole loaf for sure. Okay. Favorite city in the world to visit. Favorite city in the world to visit? Probably Marrakesh. Okay, Marrakesh. Last one. Favorite city in the country you ever went to on the trail? On the trail? Favorite city? Like a butter cow at some (sighs) state fair or something? 
That's tough because I, there are so many places that were awesome. I mean, like I liked, I always liked going to, I don't know, like the unexpected, like Laredo. It was awesome. And Nashville was amazing. And I mean, I know these aren't the answers because everyone's like, do you say Iowa City or do you say Des Moines? No, I mean, it was, I spent a lot of time. I, I found like the places that we didn't go to very often. It's like, oh my God, this is like really interesting. Excellent. Well, there you have it, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, Huma Abedin, buy the book. There's lots more in there that we didn't cover. Thanks so much for being on the pod today. Thank you so much for having me, guys. This was fun. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Jared, everybody, we pray for Ukraine. And until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.